Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're thrilled to welcome you to our wonderful Robert H. Smith Auditorium with the best seats in New York City. Aren't they great? Tonight's program is presented in conjunction with our new major exhibition, The Battle of Brooklyn, which is on view now through January 8th. If you haven't seen it, it looks great. I, I have not been able to go through the whole exhibition yet, but I went through half of it, and it's, it's just clear and simple and I think beautifully done. Please pick up a brochure, our programs and exhibitions brochure, if you don't already have one. And if you're not yet a member, consider becoming a member. The memberships help support all our programs. And I like to suggest, um, if you're a member, that you think about the gift of membership for the holiday season. I've given that gift many times, and people love it. It's, it's actually a great house gift if you're going for dinner. So how many members do we have with us today? So the two people who are not members, <laughs> we can't wait till you join. This evening's program, The Battle of Brooklyn, is part of Bernard Nyren Schwartz's Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs, and as always, we want to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. In addition, I'd like to recognize and thank trustees with us tonight, Joel Pickett, thank you for all your support and help, and Ira Unschuld and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight. Let's give them all a great hand. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and we invite you, uh, for the two people who are not yet members who might not know, we put microphones in the aisles, and we ask you to come to the microphone so everyone can hear you. We're thrilled to welcome Patrick K. O'Donnell to the New York Historical Society. Mr. O'Donnell is a best-selling military historian and the critically acclaimed author of 10 books, including his latest, Washington's Immortals, the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the revolution. He served as combat historian in a Marine rifle platoon during the Battle of Fallujah, an expert on espionage, special operations, and counterinsurgency. He has provided historical consulting for DreamWorks, award-winning miniseries, Band of Brothers, and documentaries produced by the BBC and the History Channel. We are also so pleased to welcome back renowned historian and author, Richard Brookheiser. Mr. Brookheiser is a senior editor of National Review, as well as a columnist for American history. In 2004, he acted as historian curator for the New York Historical's exhibit, Alexander Hamilton, The Man Who Made Modern America. And in 2008, Mr. Brookheiser was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. He has written numerous books on revolutionary America, including the biography, Founding Father, Rediscovering George Washington. So before we begin, we just ask cell phones, iPhones, whatever those phones you have with you, if you please turn them off for the duration of the program, and any beeper or alarms you have. Um, 
you're not going anywhere, no alarms. You're just gonna be here the whole night. We're gonna have a great time. Thank you all for coming, and now on with the show. Thanks. Well, thank you, Dale. Uh, it, it's a great pleasure to be here with Patrick O'Donnell. We've been friends for a number of years. He's a great historian. And uh, Dale mentioned that, that we had a Hamilton show uh, here in 2004. There's a play about him, in case you haven't, uh, <laughs> haven't heard. But, uh, but, but we're here tonight uh, to talk about the revolution in a particular unit. And uh, Patrick's excellent book, uh, impressed me because I, I've written about this war and figures in it, uh, sometimes with frustration because we lose sight of it. Uh, and one reason we lose sight of it, I think, is that the Civil War intervenes. The Civil War stands between us and it. And uh, the Civil War seems larger to us. Uh, it seems more like a modern war. It also had photographs. You know, there are all those Matthew Brady and other photographs of soldiers, living soldiers, dead soldiers. But uh, Patrick, your, your book is impressive because you give us the photographs of the revolution. You, you really supply the up-close details of these events and these men. So you're writing about an elite Maryland regiment, and you say that their story begins in a tavern. T tell us about that. Their story begins in a tavern on a wintry day in 1774 where men of honor, family, and fortune assemble and create the Baltimore Independent Cadets. These are 60 men that basically sign a contract, but it's potentially their own death warrant because they're all traitors to the crown and are committing treason. They're, pu they're putting their, their lives and their fortunes and their livelihoods on the line, and they're halting all of it, basically. The leader of this group is a gentleman by the name of Mordecai Gist, and Gist is the, the effective leader of, of this group. He's a, a very successful sea captain, and he's one of the wealthiest men of Baltimore. This all begins in Baltimore City, which at the time, people said, was the damnedest hole in the world. It was, it was a rough of, place. It was a rough place, but it was a sea town. It was a, it was a merchant town. It was a, uh, it was a place of great wealth for America as well. It was an up and coming place. It was kind of like the Wild West. And these were extraordinary men that formed in that tavern. And they, they began to, they're, 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 they basically said to themselves, and in their contract, which they wrote out, that they would take, they would buy the best uh, weapons and uniforms that money could buy and outfit themselves. And then they began to drill and train. And they had their own uh, drill master, a guy by the name of Richard Carey, who had some uh, experience prior to that in a militia in the Massachusetts area. And uh, these men did target training and uh, they marched in formation. And I think the most extraordinary thing that I found in the research was a letter that came about three months after they formed the Baltimore Independent Cadets. And it was from an anonymous source. Somebody in the town had noticed these men because they had been drilling and training. And they were, the, 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 the letter uh, came in to Gist 
And it said that these men would have a 300 moment effectively. They would be outnumbered by 20,000 men and it would be, they would basically have a situation where they would be immortals. And this is in the letter that's written in 1775. It's over a year before the Battle of, of Brooklyn begins and that's exactly what happens. It's prophetic. It's prophetic and it was signed Agamemnon who was the, the king that uh, united Greece. And, and we don't know who... Uh, we don't know who, who that person, was, who Agamemnon was. Uh-huh. So, okay, so these, these, these gentlemen who, who formed themselves uh, on their own impulse, this is originally, it's a, a private group of them doing this, but then they become part of the uh, state of Maryland's, or the colony of the state's efforts uh, as the revolution begins. And, and so when... We're, we're doing this partly under the rubric of, of the NYHS commemorating the Battle of Brooklyn. It used to be called the Battle of Long Island, but now, now it's the Battle of Brooklyn. But um, so, so tell us how they get to the New York area and then why are they deployed in Brooklyn and what ensues? What happens next is this small independent company, it contains the leadership core of some of the greatest fighting regiments of the American Revolution. It includes men like Gist, Samuel Smith, um, and many, many others. And as what happens is the, the independent company basically morphs into a battalion of men. The word battalion and regiment in the American Revolution are used interchangeably. But in this case, it's say roughly about 800 men become something called Smallwood's Battalion. And this is a a unique organization in the colonies in the sense that it's it's funded by the state of Maryland as a defense force, but it later becomes part of the Continental Army. And these men are all volunteers that are part of this unit. And the Baltimore Independent Cadets fill the leadership roles within the companies within Smallwood's Battalion. And Gist becomes based effectively the second in command, mm -hmm. the major of, of Smallwood's Battalion. And, you know, what happens in the summer of 1776 is you have the largest invasion of North America in history. The Royal Navy sends over half of its fleet and transports in tens of thousands of men to the New York area. And this, is a, this becomes a rallying cry around the colonies. And Maryland mobilizes its men, including Smallwood's battalion, which march up towards Philadelphia first, and then they, they make their way towards New York City. And this is their first effective combat. There's some smaller skirmishing that, that occurs earlier in the war, but this is their real first taste of, of battle. And, and so, so New York City then is only the southern tip of Manhattan Island, but it's surrounded by, there's Staten Island and then there's Long Island. So why does the action, um, why does the first serious action happen on Long Island, what's now Brooklyn? What happens first is that the, the Royal Navy has, you know, hundreds of ships and they first land at Staten Island and they consolidate their force there. And then they, they basically attack Long Island because Washington has positioned in Long Island thousands of troops as well as in Manhattan itself. And the British decide to first clear out Long Island mm -hmm. and, and then take out 
Manhattan. So they'll clear out the flank, the, the, sort yes. of the flanking island, right. And where, where do they uh, land? They, lay, they land at a place, Graves, Gravesend Bay, mm -hmm. and they land, and uh, for several days, there's, there's skirmishing that takes place. But the, the British are very methodical in their approach. They don't want to lose a lot of men or casualties. Lord Howe, who's the commander of the land forces, his brother's in charge of the Navy, has been bloodied at Bunkered Hill. So he doesn't want, he's, he's had that experience seared in his mind. He doesn't want to lose a lot of men. So he's, he's trying to basically maneuver his way into pushing the Americans out of areas that he wants to control. His subordinate, on the other hand, Henry Clinton, had a completely different approach to war. And it could be argued in many ways that he had the right approach. He wanted to envelop and crush the Americans at any point that he could. And he, at Bunker Hill, for instance, he advocated, you know, landing above Bunker Hill and cutting off the Americans. And he did, the, he advocated the same approaches, you know, in, in various battles as well, but was overruled. And how, in many ways, had a, there's a lot of what's old is new in the American Revolution and what we see today, sort of a counterinsurgency strategy in the sense that he wanted to use uh, carrots and sticks to, mm -hmm. to, 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 to obtain his objectives. Right, because he's a peace commissioner at the same time. Right. He's a military commander. But so what is, the, what is the American line that he's facing on Long Island? What he's facing on Long Island is a, um, there's a, a set of fixed fortifications at Brooklyn Heights. This is the, the, the heart of the American offenses. The reserve, really. Yes. Right. And then there's a bony spur, the Heights of Guanus. And this is today, if you go to Greenwood Cemetery, this would be sort of the front line in many ways. Of this is These are some of the highest areas in Brooklyn. And the American army um, was positioned on this bony spur. And the, the plan was basically... But, but also stretched out to the east. It was stretched out. And the plan was... They don't, it was effectively a collapsible defense where basically the British hit and they would inflict as many casualties as possible then fall back towards the forts. It went horribly wrong, though. And the British had a, a brilliant flanking maneuver where they found the, one of the passes had been unguarded. And they ran basically a, a right hook or an enveloping hook around the American army. Around the eastern end. Yes, of, that was on the heights of Iguanas and basically surrounded the, the Americans. And that's where the, the Marylander story kind of comes into full Okay, tell, view. tell that story. What happens is picture yourself in, you know, on a summer day in 1776, it's August 27th, the night of August 26th, August 27th, and Lord Howe, Clinton, and as well as, well as Cornwallis, they find, they, they, they have a, a force, the main force that they have, they find an unguarded pass, and they make this massive flanking maneuver, and the, a demonstration force, if you will, to, to tie down the Americans, including the Marylanders, are positioned near... Greenwood Cemetery, and it's about 3 a.m., basically, the, uh, the battle begins. Interestingly enough, the largest battle of the American Revolution begins in a watermelon patch. 
<laughs> and it, it, outside of Greenwood Cemetery, uh, then, uh, it, it wasn't Greenwood Cemetery, obviously, then, but there was a, an inn called the Red Lion Inn, and they had a very popular tourist attraction, which was a, a rock that had this so-called devil's hoof in it. And in the back of the inn was a giant watermelon patch, and it was a popular tourist attraction. But on the night of, of, of uh, August 27th, basically the pickets for the British Army clash at the Red Lion Inn with pickets from uh, Edward Hands, uh, riflemen from Pennsylvania. They're driven off, but this starts the entire chain of events for the battle. Cornwallis and Clinton are making the flanking maneuver, and then up. And they're, they're several miles away. Several miles away through around, Jamaica Pass. Yes, right, okay. And in the the main push, though, or will be tested on your Brooklyn geography. <laughs> for the Marylanders, though, it's there. It's Mordecai Giss' call to arms, and it's really his. This is a 33-year-old man. It's his first battle, and at the time, William Smallwood, who was the colonel of the regiment, is in New York in Manhattan, conducting a uh, a, a um, court martial. And so he is in charge of the Maryland Regiment, or Smallwood's Regiment. And he, they come out of their headquarters, which is in the, near the Vect Cordelou House, which is now a park, the old Stonehouse Park. And they march in the night towards Greenwood Cemetery, and they set up on the hills, or parts of the elements of the units set up on the hills. The Marylanders are off towards the road, and they face the British. In, in uh, full, basically, in, in basically military uh, formations of that day, and they withstand British fire, and the British throw at them several cannonades and musket fires, and the, the, the Americans hold the line, and they, they repel the British as they attempt to go up the hill several times, and they inflict uh, significant casualties. But suddenly in the morning that they, they realize that the battle is, is, is they're, they're basically in a doomed position. It's a very different battle. Yes, because they find out that they're, they're suddenly flanked from behind. And the Marylanders have to actually fight through British lines back to their headquarters in the old stone house. And some of the accounts are really quite extraordinary. Well, and they're also, because the British have swung around. They're attacking them from in front and behind, essentially, yes? And, exactly. And, and the Americans, the survivors, are trying to get back to Brooklyn Heights, which is safety. But what is the Marylanders' assignment in this collapsing situation? The Marylanders are fighting back towards this old, the old stone house, which is their headquarters area. And there's extraordinary scenes that, that I was able to uncover in the book. And I think what makes Washington's Immortals unique compared to most books is that this is largely in the words of those who were at the sharp end of the fighting. And there's some extraordinary scenes of how they're going up some of the hills in Brooklyn and they encounter the British. And the British actually feign surrender. They, they hold their muskets down in one instance to, a, to, to lure the Americans closer and then quickly reconfigure their weapons and fire a full volley at the Marylanders. Gist and his men, including Samuel Smith, they're able to fight through that and then make their way towards the stone house. And it's here that 
This is one of the great inflection points in American history because you have a situation where a large portion of the American army is on the heights of Guanus or, or they're, they're fleeing it. They're trying to get back towards these fortifications. In Brooklyn Heights. In Brooklyn Heights. And it's the Marylanders that make an incredible stand at the Stone House. Because they're, they're covering the retreat. They're covering the retreat because what happens is that flanking maneuver that we talked about, Cornwallis has now positioned himself in the Stone House. Mm -hmm. And the only escape route is near the house through a mill pond. And the Marylanders line up under William Alexander, Lord Sterling, and they, they mount a number of vicious bayonet, bayonet charges against the house. And the house con contains a, a light cannon, a three-pounder, as well as you know several hundred British soldiers. And, and uh, Gist and his men basically make these, these near-suicidal attacks. But that allows a large portion of the American army that's on the heights of Gowanus to escape across the mill pond because they're being distracted by the Marylanders. And George Washington is watching all this from Brooklyn Heights. He sees, he sees this and he's, you know, and, and there's quite a, there's a number of, you know, what fine men I must lose this day. And, mm -hmm. and a number of quotes, and, and these quotes are not uh, fictional. They were actually in the Maryland Gazette about a week later, uh, quoted from Washington. And it's an American, this is an American 300 moment. It's an what, amazing- What was the casualty? Right. Nearly all of them, most of the Marylanders were lost. We don't know the exact numbers. Smallwood and Gist later come back and say that 256 or 258 Marylanders were lost. Now out that, of, out of? Out of about, we don't know the exact number, potentially 400 men. Okay, that's over half. At least. Okay, it so might we, have, we talk it might about, have even been 300. We, we don't even. We talk about decimation, but that's one in 10. This it was. Worse, it was. An, these were men that were not only killed, but many of them were also potentially captured. And there's some extraordinary accounts in the book from unpublished sources, like the Macmillan brothers, for instance, who were these, these Scottish indentured servants that were able to join Smallwood's battalion, and they tell you the up close. I mean, it's the bayonets were clashing, and the, the rifle stocks are actually broke. The, the, the combat was so intense with not only Cornwallis's men, but also Hessian soldiers that were flanking them as well. And I mean, the, just the McMillan stories are extraordinary in the sense that they were captured, but these men actually escaped British captivity in Nova Scotia and walked their way back. Yes, from Nova Scotia to Boston. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Now, and you, you also, I was also struck by, um, by uh, Smith, who was, was he a sergeant at this time? Well, he was, a, he was an officer, but he, he starts out but as a how sergeant. He, how he helps people get across the Gowanus Canal. Yes. And Samuel Smith is one of the great regimental commanders of the American Revolution. And he starts out in the, in the Baltimore Independent Cadets as a sergeant, later takes over the independent company, the first company. And then at this time, he has a company command as well. And mm -hmm. Samuel Smith's a true leader. His, um, his men come first. He actually helps several of his men that can't swim 
because they have to cross. I mean, the Gowanus Canal is not a canal; it's a it's a stream. It's, it's a, a tidal stream, stream and a mill and pond, and it's very deep. In many cases, it's about six feet deep. And the tide was high. Right. Okay. And Samuel Smith finds a log and actually helps several of his men cross with the log. Some of the men in here are also lucky enough to be over six feet tall, so they're able to walk. Another commander that's in here is a gentleman by the name of Nathaniel Ramsey, who's kind of the, one of the old men in the in the unit. He's in his 30s. And uh, he is able to walk across and help his men make it across as well. But it's, you know, I, for me, Rick, this is an amazing moment because... In many ways, it's a full circle moment because I began my research for this book in 2010. And I'll never forget, it was, it was after your uh, film, Hamilton, that I saw, and I, I, I began the book, um, I, I, I encountered this rusted old sign in Brooklyn, and I was with a... The comp the I was in the Battle of Fallujah with a Marine rifle platoon, and I was there with the commanding officer of that unit, and we stumbled across this rusted old sign that said, here lie 256 Continental soldiers, Maryland heroes. And it was, I was, I was struck by the fact, how could there be buried bodies of these heroes in, in Brooklyn to this day? That the, the mass grave of these men is still unknown. Saw the sign and I became motivated. And then I, I remember I saw the film uh, Hamilton, and uh, there was a scene in Hamilton with the Battle of Brooklyn, and I came up to you after the first time I met you, and I said, you know, I'm really thinking about doing something about the Marylanders. And I asked you, do you think the book can be done? Because there's the sources are so scarce on this. And you said, yes, it, it can be done. And you said that the, the key will be something called pension files. And the pension files were the key to this book. And literally hundreds were used. And what I mean by a pension file is, if you were lucky enough to survive the American Revolution in the 1820s or so, you could go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you saw and did. And these are the accounts of these men that are in Washington's Immortals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now tell us, okay, so this is the, the this, this uh, Thermopylae-like defense that, that they give uh, at the Battle of Brooklyn, but this is 1776, and the, and the war has many years to go. Um, tell us a little bit about Stony Point. Now, now that's a battle that, I mean, we, if we know anything about the Revolution, we know a little bit, we know about some of the larger battles, and Stony Point can kind of fall through the cracks, but... This is another uh, heroic uh, um, exploit of this Maryland unit. Stony Point is an extraordinary battle. Some call it a raid. I mean, you're, you're lucky. Here in New York, you have some of the richest history on the American Revolution, and not far away is, is Stony Point, which is only you know 20 or so miles south of West Point. And that story is... I find so compelling because it involves the Marylanders in something called the light infantry. And what the light infantry included was in 1778, Washington took, he organized a light corps and he asked for volunteers from all the regiments 
to form what was known as the Light Infantry. And Light Infantry were, were all volunteers. They were men of like athletic prowess, but they were a light corps. And what that meant was that they didn't have baggage or heavy cannon. And so they were in, in some ways a precursor to uh, spe our special operation forces in a, in, a, in a way. And in the summer of 1779, the war was not going well. It was in a stalemate position. New York, the British didn't have enough troops to basically conduct offensive operations. And Washington's army was hit with hyperinflation. Men, there were a lot of men losses that were, uh, that were just dissipating from the army. They're it going would, home. They're going they're not home. Being paid. There's hype, hyperinflation is just racking the American economy. And it looked like the, the, the revolution was potentially lost. And what Lord Howe does is he attacks a blockhouse or a series of blockhouses at Stony Point that were occupied by the Americans. And he positions about 800 British soldiers there in about 19 uh, cannon. He makes it, a, what was, they, it was dubbed the Gibraltar of North America. It was a very, it was a defended position, but it was all kind of bait. And how wanted Washington to commit his entire army down to Stony Point, and then he could swing around from behind with the British fleet and attack from the front and envelop the entire army. Washington didn't uh, take the bait. And in fact, he assigned Mad Anthony Wayne, who at the time was in charge of the light infantry. And the light infantry consisted of about 1,200 men, and their goal was to take Stony Point. And the Marylanders play a key role in the sense that one of the prongs of the assault on the left-hand side is led by a legendary guy in the Marylanders, Jack Stewart, whose motto in life was, you only live once. He was a headstrong 24-year-old uh, lieutenant colonel at the time. He rose through the ranks, fought in, in the Battle of Brooklyn, fought in Long Island, or fought in Manhattan and in many other battles. And he's, he's leading what's known as the Forlorn Hope. And that is effectively a suicide squad. These men on the Forlorn Hope are not expected to live. They're armed only, the front lines of the Forlorn Hope are armed only with axes. And their job is to cut apart an Atabay, which surrounds uh, Stony Point. And, and what is that? An Atabay is uh, sharpened logs and sticks that are, that are sticking out. Basically, kind of think of it as uh, 18th century barbed wire. It's a way to sort of hold your position. And the men of the Forlorn Hope had to cut through the, this thing. And the, the men um, were also armed with un... They were, they were loaded, and all the muskets, none of them were loaded because they didn't want to have an accidental discharge. And the officers in the Forlorn Hope, as well as the assault force, were armed with something called spontoons, which were basically sharpened spears. And they were ordered to run through any American that ran or talked. <laughs> and this literally happens in the records. They actually killed fellow Americans that, that decide to run. But they conducted the Forlorn Hope, they broke through, and they captured the entire British garrison mm -hmm. on August, or on July 15th, 1779. Uh, and then uh, one of my, uh, I don't want to use the word favorite because we are talking about, uh, about battles and death and destruction, but, but certainly a notable battle is Cowpens. 
And this, this is when the, the focus of the war shifts from the Northeast and it shifts to the South, and the Marylanders get, get sent there. And uh, after many debacles, it's, it's one of the American victories as the tide turns. So, so tell, tell us about... Uh, Washington's Immortals is, is really the first band of brothers on the American Revolution. It's not just about the Battle of Brooklyn, but it's the entire experience that these men fight through effectively what amounts to almost eight years of war. And the war, after Stony Point, the war turns south. The British um, experience some success first at Savannah, where they repulse a, a combined French-American uh, invasion. Um, and then Clinton decides, along with uh, Cornwallis, they decide to, to attack Charleston in the summer of, of, of 1780. And it's one of the you know, great American defeats. Nearly 5,000 Americans, including sailors, are, are captured at Charleston. They then have a crushing victory at a place called Camden. And the American Revolution is really, quite frankly, on the ropes. I mean, there's, there's talk of the entire French alliance collapsing. They're not going to provide us financial support or troops. There's talk of almost a Syrian-like uh, peace brokerage where the great powers of the world, including Russia, are gonna broker the American Revolution. And interestingly enough, they, don't, they decide not to invite Washington or the Americans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to the, it'll, be, it'll be brokered the, for us. Yeah, so you know, it, when things are brokered for you, they never really work. Um, that's, that's a lesson learned there. And anyways, what happens though is a chain of events in the South that wins the war for America, beginning at a place called King's Mountain, where an entire element of Cornwallis's army is destroyed. Loyalists are destroyed at King's Mountain. But one of the great turning points is a place called Cowpens. And the Mel Gibson movie, Patriot, has sort of a composite, if you will, of elements of this battle, where one of the finest leaders of the American Revolution, one of my one of the men that I, I find truly fascinating and, and incredible is Daniel Morgan, who comes up with an innovative defense scheme. He has to face, his opponent at Cowpens is a ruthless and maniacal British lead, cavalry leader named Bannister Tarleton. And Tarleton has a, an excellent force, and Morgan has the Marylanders as his backbone, along with the Delaware Blues, who fight through this entire war. They're also part of the, the Immortals. And along with a lot of militiamen. And he comes up with an innovative... And militiamen are a, a dicey thing. They can do very well, they and they can also do They shift in and out of well. battle. They, they're very, like you said, dicey. They're very fickle. Mm -hmm. You know, one minute they're there, the next minute they're plowing their farms. But Morgan decides that he's going to make a stand against Tarleton, and he asked the militia, fire three shots and then leave. And the plan is basically a, um, a defense in depth where he puts the militia in front, they fire three shots, the Marylanders are hidden behind a swale or a, that, and they're not seen um, as the British approach. 
And what happens is the British charge, they, they, they're felled by many of the militia bullets. They, they fire their three shots, they escape. They go through a hole that's in the Marylanders' line. The British come full on. They think it's a repeat of the Battle of, Command, uh, of Camden, where the, it was a complete rout of the American army. And they attack, and the Marylanders make a great stand initially. And John Eager Howard, his order is mis misrep misunderstood by a Virginian. He thinks it's to wheel right. It's to wheel right, but the, the Virginian actually believes it's to retreat. And the men literally show their backs for a minute. And the British then completely charge. And at this point, the militia have reformed along with William Washington's horse cavalry, the nephew of George Washington, and they crush Tarleton's force. It's, it's enveloped, in, in the, as well as the, the Marylanders then charge forward, and they take several cannon, and it's a crushing an American victory. Um, one, one thing that's, that's very impressive about this book is the attention to individuals. I mean, both to commanders, people like, like Gist and Smith, but also to the privates. And you, you got a lot of this out of these, these pension reports. Um, I, I was struck by a man named Brian Philpot, and he's really a window into post-traumatic stress. I mean, you know, we think it's wrong to think of the revolution as being in, in any way decorous because it was 18th century. I mean, you know, dying in the 18th century is as bad as dying in the 21st century. But tell us a little bit about Brian Philpot. What we see in the American Revolution is this was a long, brutal, and bloody war. Lots of the fighting was close in, in some cases, hand-to-hand -hand bayonets. And Philippot is a survivor of the Battle of Brooklyn, and he recalls seeing the man next to him decapitated by a cannonball. And that vision haunts him, and he has night terrors and it's recorded in the pension file. And you see this in multiple occasions where these men have PTSD, it's just not labeled. It was not known at mm -hmm. that time, or was lab not labeled such, but you know, the men had the same effects of, of, of troops in combat, basically. You also write about uh, Americans who were taken prisoner, and you, you, you describe uh, being a prisoner of the British as an extended death sentence. Right here in New York Harbor were some of the greatest casualties of the American Revolution. Estimates vary, nobody knows the exact number, but the low end, 10,000 Americans died on what was known as British prison ships or hell ships. And this, the, the high number is 18,000. And these were anchored where? In, in and around New York City. Mm -hmm. And these were old, British ships that were basically packed like to the gills. These men were put on in the hulls of these ships and they were starved in most cases. And they, they had uh, massive amounts of, of uh, disease. There was rampant and very few Americans actually survived the ships. And the, the bones of, the, of these men, once the bodies were people, the Americans died, they were just thrown overboard. And the bones of these men would still wash ashore mm -hmm. 100 years On later. into the 19th century. Yes. Yeah, I, ju I just want to read, you, you quoted this, this harrowing passage, uh, not from a Marylander, but a man from Connecticut, William Slade, 
Uh, Sunday the 17th, such a Sabbath I never saw. We spent it in sorrow and hunger. Uh, Tuesday the 19th, still confined without provisions till almost night when we got a little moldy biscuit, about four per man. Wednesday the 20th, we were reinforced by 300 more prisoners. We had 500 before. This caused a continual noise and very big huddle. Just at night, drawed six ounces of pork per man. This we ate alone and raw. Thursday the 24th, we passed the day in sorrow, having nothing to eat or drink but pump water. Sunday the 22nd, last night nothing but groans all night of sick and dying, men amazing to behold. Uh, how do we treat our prisoners? I think that that's the extraordinary lesson of the American Revolution. This is about ideas and ideals. And we were suffering. I mean, Hessians bayoneted our troops in the Battle of Brooklyn. They would literally circle our men and collapse the circle and bayonet anyone inside it. Prisoners were executed left and right. But the, the American army, the Continental Army, had a code of honor. The spirit of humanity that John Adams basically espoused in this, the, 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 the ideals of the revolution basically filtered down to the battlefield. And that's, we, we conducted ourselves in a noble manner, at least in the, largely in the North. Some of the battles in the South, um, where you're dealing with sort of backcountry partisans. It, that's no, guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare. Sides. But when you're dealing with drilled uh, continental troops, we conducted ourselves according to the spirit of humanity. And it's something that I think we should be proud of, and it's something that I think we can learn from to this day. Uh, I want to ask you, I won't, I won't say he's my favorite soldier in your book, but he's in a way the most amazing. This is Michael Doherty. <laughs> Michael Doherty is soldier extraordinaire and turncoat extraordinaire. Michael Doherty first joins us in Washington's Immortals at the Battle of Brandywine, where he's fighting with the Delaware Blues. And the battle is an American loss, and his unit runs out of ammunition, and he surrenders to the British. And he's given a choice, either go to a British hell ship or join the Crown. And he joins, he joins the British Army. And he fights through uh, many battles and campaigns, and he finds his way to Stony Point, where he is once again fighting for his life, but this time as a British soldier. And Stony Point is captured, as I talked about earlier, and he and several of his other men that, that had turned coat or, or changed sides are captured. Those men are all put... They, they erect a gallows at Stony Point, and those men are hung as traitors. But Michael Doherty talks his way out of it <laughs> and joins his brothers in the Delaware Blues and fights through the American Revolution. The war, as I talked about, turns south. He fights at the Battle of Camden and finds himself out of ammunition again joins the British Army, <laughs> fights through the Battle of Cowpens, 
and then joins his brothers in the Delaware Blues again. <laughs> so this guy, this guy must have been a remarkable man <laughs> to be taken back. I mean, do, is, it, is it because the Delaware Blues were such nice guys, or was there something about him, or how think, come he's not hanged? I think that uh, Michael Doherty has charisma and is just a very fast talker. <laughs> well, you know, but it's all that's also. But this is the sort of the what, what we see in Washington's Immortals. It's not a binary type thing. It's very fluid. There's loyalists. There's traitors. There's people that change sides. And also, everybody speaks English. They're they're all you know they're all speaking the same language, and they really were once countrymen. So it's not so hard to go back and forth if that's what you want to do. Indeed, and then and then you see very, I mean, in a in a larger scale, the Michael Doherty phenomenon in the South. For instance, General Green takes over the Marylanders after after Cowpens, and he fights at a place called Utah Springs, and this is right around the Battle of Yorktown that time period. And it's but it's in the South, and it's near Charleston, and he says something interesting. He says that many of my men are now fighting in the British Army, and now the British Army is fighting for me. Mm -hmm. me, me, me Meaning me. that his these men had defected, these British soldiers had defected in, and oh, are now okay. fighting in Green's army okay. with the Marylanders. All right, so it was sort of, it evened out. Yeah. Okay. All right, I think we're uh, ready to take questions. We've got uh, two mics, one there and one there. Uh, so uh, I'll just... Uh, Take people in turn. Yes, sir. Why don't you start I, us I off? Seem, uh, I seem to recall that uh, just uh, two or three years ago, there's a little bit of a controversy about some of the remains of the Continentals being underground near the Stone uh, House uh, area, closer to Third Avenue. But with that thought in mind, why, why is the monument to the Maryland Regiment in Prospect Park? And, and it's in a rather obscure place, designed by Stanford White, of all people. You, you make an excellent point. In fact, it's very hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to Prospect Park, you have to sort of look around, and then you, you find kind of an obscure trail. And then if you're lucky, you find the Marylanders Monument. And it's in the wrong place, but I think it was because they wanted a, there was a, it was a public park at the time, public land, and then they erected the monument. But it's still, this is a tragedy. This is a national tragedy. The bodies of these men, it's not known exactly where they're, they're buried, but a lot of the evidence points to several blocks away from the Stone House near the Michael Raleigh American Legion Post. And it could be that they're buried under the street or in an empty lot. It's just not known. But it's like, it's one of those things where one of, one of the goals that I've had with Washington's Immortals is to bring attention to this issue and hopefully to, to solve this mystery and bring the, the men of honor, family, and fortune home. Okay, um, no one over there. Uh, when, oh yes, we have uh, another question. Yes, um, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, you mentioned that you did a lot of your research here at New York Historical Society, correct? Yes. Yes. In fact, the, the, the very beginning of my research was in 2010 when the research room was actually closed. And that was, it was a great honor for me that the, the, the room was open for me. And uh, I was able to conduct my research here 
while it was closed, and, and, and uh, a lot of research for Washington's Immortals. Uh, so the, the question is, anything in particular that you were just so surprised or, you know, were so happy to find to be able to use in this story? Um, so uh, the Sterling, uh, Lord Sterling's papers are here, for instance. Uh, then there's... Oh, and by the way, explain why he's Lord Sterling. That has a kind of well, British he, ring to it. Yeah. He's uh, one of ours. His name is William Alexander, but he claimed that he had a, a noble title, and that was in <laughs> in dispute. He was also a chronic debtor and an alcoholic. <laughs> Sounds like a nobleman to me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of great, so many great, it's, it's amazing to be able to feel a piece of paper that was, you know, at Valley Forge. And that's right here at, you know, the New York Historical Society. So much of the, so much amazing artifacts and, and amazing documents um, that I was able to utilize. Uh, so I'll just, because there aren't many people uh, waiting, the pensioner papers, did you find those here as well? There were some, but most of them are Interestingly enough, you all can become researchers. Um, the something called Fold Three has taken all these pay, these pension files and digitized them, and you can go online and you can find your relatives, and you can look and see what what they did. In some cases, it's I was at the Battle of Stony Point, or in other cases, it's like Lawrence Everhart, who was a Marylander at Fort Washington that was the luckiest Marylander, I think, of the war, maybe the luckiest soldier of the war, was able to find a rowboat, rowed across um, the river, landed in Fort Lee near a mansion, and the mansion was occupied by George Washington himself. And the pension file records Washington looking through his spyglass and seeing Hessian soldiers execute his men, and Washington has tears in his eyes extraordinary uh, details that you just don't see in, you know, the, these are from common men. Yes, sir. Um, what was the role of the Marylanders in the uh, crossing of the East River at the end of the battle? And I've always wondered, how did, did, they, how did they get their horses out, the uh, American officers? The crossing of the East River is arguably one of the greatest military retreats in world history. And John Glover and the Marblehead men, these are these were seamen from Marblehead, Massachusetts, assembled all the boats in Manhattan. And it, you know, it's an extraordinary story of, with many layers. A fog rolls in exactly on time. <laughs> it screens the American army, and they're able to evacuate nearly every man in the force. The Marylanders, Washington knows that these are solid men that he can rely upon. They're the rear guard, and he leaves them in the, in the entrenchments and redoubts until the very end. And there's a great story from Samuel Smith saying, where he, it's in his diary where he, or biography, where he, or autobiography, where he says that he basically doesn't realize that they're evacuating because they, they were told that they were going to actually make an attack that night. Doesn't and that realize was for security. For security purposes, because a single American traitor that ran into British lines could blow the entire operation. So security was paramount 
But Smith didn't know. And he basically finds, realizes that everybody's evacuating and he pulls his men back and he runs into Washington himself. And Washington says, yeah, get to the boats. And uh, they make it onto the boats and the Br British horse, basically cavalry, uh, comes over the, the, the rise. And it, as the men are in the boats, they, they escape. It's an incredible story. And Samuel Smith, by the way, in the War of 1812, he organizes the defenses of Baltimore and Fort McHenry. So that's his, uh, his forward story. Uh, that, that man sat down. Yes. As a Flatbush homeowner who spent years hoping I'd find a revolutionary musket ball in my garden, I have been uh, maybe more uh, uh, nerdy about the Battle of Brooklyn than many people, and I've spent decades saying, you know, why isn't there a national park here? We have a little tiny monument in Prospect Park on a boulder and the stone house, of course, try to keep the flame alive. It seems now with this exhibit and the smaller but very nicely done one at the Stone House that we have some type of a moment going here for the Battle of Brooklyn. Absolutely. Are we having a moment where we're going to rescue it and restore it to a deeper presence in the historical record and the way history is taught and take it up from obscurity? Have we finally overcome the jinx that, well, we lost and so no one knows this happened? It's. I think you make such an excellent point. The Battle of Brooklyn is arguably more important than Gettysburg because this is a situation where the entire United States could have been destroyed. The entire American army could have been lost that day had it you know, not been for a, a series of events, including the Marylanders. So I think that this is hallowed ground. There needs to be a national park here. And this is, but this is a classic thing. You go to the Battle of Camden. It's a bunch of weeds on the side of the road with a couple signs that's in private hands. Americans don't like to celebrate their defeats. And it's, this is, it's, it's important history that needs to be preserved. Um, this, this reminds me of, of two things. The first there was a Brooklyn borough president. I, I won't say the name because I don't want to, I don't think he was malicious. I don't want to beat him up too much, but he, he, uh, he took, uh, he had a picture of Washington in his office and he took it down at one point. And I thought, you son of a bitch, if it hadn't been for this man and the man that Patrick has been talking about, Kate Middleton would have your job. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> unbelievable. And then you, you mentioned the, uh, the Red Lion Tavern that had the devil's, uh, you know how the devil's footprint was left there, why it was there. Maybe well, you I should thought, tell no, us I the story. I found this out. Um, <laughs> the devil left his footprint there because earlier in the 18th century, uh, there was a black fiddler whose name was Juiced. His first name was Juiced, Dutch name. And he'd been engaged to play at a party um, in someplace in Brooklyn, and he was coming home late at night. And uh, he met a, a dark stranger at a crossroads uh, who also had a violin and said, Let, let's see how well you can play. And so they had a little competition. And then Juiced realizes as this is going on, this, this man is playing very, very well. And of course, it's the devil. And then uh, as, as dawn is about to break, the first church bell rings and the devil has to leave. So in vexation, he stamps his foot into the rock. And that is the story of why the devil's footprint <laughs> was left in that rock. So 
I think we're out of time, so thank you very much. Thank you. Patrick O'Donnell, Rick Brookheiser, thank you so much. Pleasure Just a reminder to the audience, they will be signing books. That We have our book sale kiosk right outside the doors and the book signing table. They'll be on the Central Park West side. Thank you so much again for coming. And just a reminder, uh, very important before you all leave, December 14th, another program with Rick Brookheiser on Hamilton's Best Friend. It is going to sell out. If you want to get a ticket, now's the time. Uh, call up tomorrow our, our uh, center for your tickets, or um, whatever you call it. And thank you all for coming. Thanks so much. Thank